This is the cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and center. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioral challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. 5pm in the City of London. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside this evening. Bloomberg Intelligence's Damien Sassauer. We've got a lot to talk about when it comes to China. We've got a lot to talk about when it comes to COVID. We need to talk about the French election. We need to talk about what's happening in these markets. Let me give you a quick price check. The FTSE 100 down by 1.9% of the close. The Cacuron down over 2%. The Nasdaq off by 7 tenths of 1%. The S&P down by 1.5%. Damien Sasser, a lot of people are blaming China for today's market action. I'm not quite so sure. Well, I think it really began in Japan, Guy. I mean, look, I mean, the move in dollar-yen has been nothing short of spectacular. And what that does is it makes Japanese exports that much uh, more attractive to uh, external buyers relative to Chinese exports or Korean exports or exports from any other Asian economy, right? So I think that's really what drove the move in dollar-yuan. And now, my goodness, if you just look at where we are, what, 657? I mean, that was a 23 big-figure move this month alone, Guy. So I know you were on vacation for a part of it, but welcome back. Yep. Do you think, I, what, what do you see more broadly? Do you see, I see equity markets down pretty hard, but I see, I see that as a continuation of a move that happened Thursday, Friday last week. Everybody's getting seriously concerned about the Fed. Which is the biggest factor right now, the Fed or what's happening in China? I, we could be talking about Beijing lockdowns now. We've certainly got a Shanghai lockdown. We'll talk more about that at the moment with Sam Fazelli. But what do you think? I, is, the, the bigger picture remains the Fed, right? Absolutely. No, I mean, there's no question. The move in dollar yuan was driven, as I said, by the yen. But all of that was driven by U.S. Treasury yields, yep. you know, of, of surging to new highs. You know, I know we've come back a bit, and that makes sense to me. But, you know, the reality is, if you look at uh, China, U.S., yield differentials, they've inverted, meaning you get a higher yield for the first time in a long, long time for investing in U.S. dollar bonds than those in China. And so if you look at dollar yuan historically over you know the better part of the last decade, that tracks very well to U.S.-China rate differentials. And now with them being inverted, that just says more weakness ahead for the, for, for, for the Chinese yuan. We got a triple R cut a little bit earlier on. The Chinese are beginning to lean back in on this. They were leaning in on yuan strength in December. Now it's gone the other way. Uh, we'll be back. We'll talk more about what is happening in China in just a moment. This has huge implications for the global economy. Uh, we had a French election over the weekend, but the Chinese story having a huge impact, a bigger impact into European equities today. So it's worth talking about, worth spending some time focusing on. Uh, before we get back to China, let's get a focus on what's happening with the headlines. Here's Charlie. Hi, Pitt. thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Welcome back. Let's begin with inflation in the Eurozone, specifically what is happening with UK inflation. Manufacturers were raising prices at the fastest pace in more than four decades in a bid to cover soaring uh, soaring raw material and energy costs. And a further acceleration is expected. This according to the Confederation of British Industry in its first quarterly survey of the sector since Russia invaded Ukraine. The CBI found companies from food producers to automakers under growing pressure in the three months through April. The business lobby group said cost jumped by the most in almost 
half a century. The U.S. is among nations pressing Indonesia to include Ukraine as a guest at the Group of 20 summit in November, frustrated at Jakarta's refusal to withdraw an invitation for Russian President Vladimir Putin. The host country traditionally invites a number of nations to join some aspects of the summit as observers, though they don't tend to sit in on the formal discussions. Asking prices for UK homes hit a record for a third straight month, driven by a shortage of properties on the market. Rightmove says price sellers sought in April, or the price that sellers sought in April was 9.9% higher than a year ago at 360,100 pounds. The online property portal describes it as a frenzy. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. So China expanding coronavirus testing to most of Beijing now as rising cases fuel fears about an unprecedented lockdown in the capital. Uh, Policymakers basically are now racing to avert something that looks like Shanghai, uh, which is in the midst of a crisis. The situation there seems to be getting worse. I hear that they're putting metal fences up around buildings that have high case counts. Uh, It's hard in some areas uh, to access the basic necessities uh, that you need, i.e. food. Um, It's a really difficult situation. Is it justified? What is the way out here? Uh, Well, let's bring into the conversation. Uh, Damien and I have already kind of kicked it off. Bloomberg's Sam Fazelli. Sam, what do you make of the situation? We've gone from a serious situation in Shanghai that appears to be getting worse now to the possibility of Beijing uh, being locked down as well. Significant testing already starting to be rolled out. We're going to see that uh, later in the month. What do you make of the situation? Yeah, hi, Guy. Um, thanks for having me back on. Honestly, I, you know, we've talked about this several times now. I, I, I don't understand why they continue down the path of what is clearly a failing approach. This is not working. Yes, it's keeping the number of infections perhaps under control, the number of deaths under control, but it's at an exceedingly high price with regards to the, uh, the, 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 the impact on people, their mental health and their ability to conduct a normal life. And I, don't, I just cannot see why they keep playing this card when there is another way. You know, Sam, no one's better at monitoring the spread of COVID in countries like China. You know, my question for you, and, you know, I'm, a, I'm an emerging markets guy, as we know. I mean, what kind of credence do you put in the economic data? Or should we as investors be relying more on, I guess, alternative data sets, such as mobility data from Baidu or, or Veriflare or Google? You know, Damien, um, alternative data sets are really good ways of checking against um uh, official numbers, right? So uh, one of the things that I've seen uh, regularly posted sometimes on um, on Twitter is the number of ships that are waiting to unload or, or, or load at the various ports in, in China. And I think that tells you if things have slowed down, provided you can follow that on a, on a meaningful historic basis and see how it's doing compared to this time last year, etc. So that kind of thing mobility, et cetera, that will tell you yeah. what the reality on the ground is. And then, of course, the companies, as they report this quarter, I'm pretty sure they'll be giving us a blow-by-blow uh, account of exactly how they're being impacted in terms of supply chain and where the risks are. Um, I just can't see, though, how this gets better. Okay. So, Damien, what, I, you bring up the data, so let's talk about it. What do you see in the data right now 
in terms of the impact this is having. Uh, you see the pictures coming out of Shanghai. A huge area is basically in full lockdown. You talk to people that, are, that have been there uh, or are there, uh, and they talk about the fact that they're, they're not leaving the hotel room or the, or the apartments, and they haven't done so for weeks. So what are you seeing in, in the numbers out of, out of Shanghai, and could that be replicated in Beijing? Oh, absolutely. And guy, for me, I mean, one of the uh, most important sources of that data is Baidu itself, right? The, uh, you know, you know, the, the large Chinese uh, tech company. I mean, traffic at peak hours in Shanghai is down 40% year over year, Guy. And if you look at, you know, data coming out of Veriflight, which is basically monitors, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, the airports and what have you, you know, the two largest airports in Shanghai, I mean, I think less than 10% of flights were actually completed over the weekend. So, you know, that just tells you everything you need to know about the impact of these lockdowns on a city such as Shanghai. And yes, I believe that's definitely in the cards for Beijing. Sam, what is the COVID data telling us? I'm starting to see the fatality numbers really go up quite sharply in in Shanghai. Is that an indication that we're getting near to the peak? What, What are you seeing in terms of the actual data related to COVID? Yeah, I mean, remember, Guy, that deaths always um, lag. lag. Clearly, infections, right? So the first is infections, then hospitalization data a week or two later, and then a week or two after that, deaths. And and there's, of course, deaths is entirely driven not just by the number of people who go to hospital, but the vaccination status, by the quality of care they get. And I'm pretty sure that these folks are being treated as best as possible in the pretty high quality uh, Chinese healthcare setup. So um, that, I'm not surprised to see the numbers rise now. They're reflecting what's been going on. And um, the, the percentage of, of, of the mortality rate relative to the official case counts, when it's this high, tells you that there is a, a higher, and, and how much higher is it's tough to tell, level of infections because you, you don't know uh, how bad the vaccination status is, how often these people are being um, taken to hospital, etc. So, but it's it's not a pretty picture. And what they need is good quality vaccine boosters. We've been saying this forever. Well, during the COVID period, anyway. Well, you know, Sam, I have to just ask you, I have to draw on you. You know, you mentioned Twitter earlier as a source, you know, for yourself, and I use it as well. And, you know, I saw a Twitter feed blowing up over the weekend about the CFOs of Pfizer and Moderna resigning over, you know, the past week. And, you know, obviously we see C-suite changes all the time. But, you know, a number of investors are expressing concern. And I'm wondering what this signals to you, if anything at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not got, I don't think I want to draw too much from those because Moderna is, you know, some of these folks have been in place for, for, for a while. I don't think it's necessarily anything to do with the approach that the companies have been taking to either pricing of their vaccines or not. And I want to keep reminding everybody that at least the Pfizer vaccine, Moderna being a little bit more expensive, is not much more than a price of a meal at, for two at, at, a, at a burger chain. You know, it, 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 we really are talking about numbers that are incredibly well uh, um, affordable. Clearly, when you're doing with dealing with hundreds of millions of doses, that becomes a large number. But we are dealing with vaccines that are, for the benefit you get from them, are, are incredibly good value. So I think these are probably coincidental as opposed to uh, causally related. Just You bring up the mRNA vaccines. How far is China away from a workable mRNA vaccine? Um, well, only time will tell, right? Because I, I, th- I think what we need to see from them is the development of vaccines, you know, from the companies that are more similar 
to the ones that we've we've been lucky enough to have in the uh, in the West, i.e. Moderna, i.e. Pfizer-BioNTech, and it's not just the mRNA guy. It is a lot to do with the with the lipid and the way that that's been structured and organised. That needs to be right. So, I am fully confident that that can be achieved by another company, uh, company a biotech company in, in China. The problem is. You don't have to wait for that. There's already a Chinese company partnered with BioNTech who's got a regulatory file who could be supplying today. Why wait? So, you know, Sam, I just wonder, you know, I mean, just taking it a step further, you know, we all talk about China and the importance of, you know, um, of vaccinations there. I mean, where else are we seeing progress, globally speaking? I mean, there are plenty of economies throughout the emerging market space, you know, that that that, that basically are way behind the curve. You know, I, I think of I think of Brazil, I think of Mexico. I'm just curious, you know, what are sort of hotspots should investors be focused on as it relates to COVID? Yeah, I think actually South America has done relatively well. I think the area that's got the, the worst um, uh, situation is, is Africa. Now, unfortunately, that's not just about the availability of vaccines. It's about the ability to get the vaccines through that last mile. It's about convincing people to take the vaccine doses. A little bit like China. China had these vaccines, mm. perhaps slightly less effective, but a lot of people chose not to take them, especially in the elderly group. The, the percentage of vaccination is quite low. So, but let's not forget, we don't have to go that far. U.S. is way down the curve when it comes to booster shots. Mm. Just the third shot that we know. There's endless amounts of data suggesting that you really need that to protect against the immune escape variant Omicron. And, and, and there, we already have work to do. We already need people to just go and even get their primary series of vaccines in the U.S. Europe is probably yep. the best place in terms of compliant people. And, and I guess it shows in the numbers. Sam, what is the risk that China produces another variant? I, it, it, I, I'm still we're still talking about this, but the, the number of cases must produce a significant risk. We, we yeah. certainly I, in Europe, we feel like we're beyond this now. Uh, most of the restrictions have gone. Uh, most people are vaccinated. Uh, even the younger cohorts are now vaccinated. But, but how big a threat does China represent in terms of bringing this back? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, a, there's any logic that, that you can discern from the history of variant evolution that suggests to you that it's going to be the country that has got the lowest vaccination levels or right. it's going to be a country that's got <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> highest infection rates. Because if you think back to it, the Omicron variant came out of um, um, uh, South Africa, but from a chronically infected patient is the most likely explanation. But there are chronically infected patients everywhere. So it doesn't have any rhyme or reason why it would be China or the UK, which is where the Alpha variant came from, or India, where yeah. the Delta variant first was discovered, um, or perhaps the United States. And there are sub-variants of Omicron that are quite specific to the United States. So I don't think that's the worry here. The worry, of course, is wherever there is a high level of transmission of the, vaccine, of the virus, you will have a higher risk of evolution of a variant. If that happens to be the United States, that's where it will come. Sam, always a pleasure to catch up. We're not doing it enough. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg, Sam Fazelli, the expert on what is happening with the COVID story, which continues to evolve uh, China, certainly the epicenter right now. And the global shock, the economic shock that's going to come off that uh, is certainly being priced in by markets right now. Up next, we're going to take you to Paris for reaction to the French election. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. This day of the 24th of April 2022, a majority among us made the choice to entrust in me the presidency of our republic for the five years to come. We have to consider all the difficulties of everyday lives and respond effectively to the anger that has been expressed. The French President Emmanuel Macron speaking after defeating the far-right leader Marine Le Pen in Sunday's French presidential election. Uh, he campaigned on a pro-business, pro-European Union platform, a big boost to the EU at a time when it was starting to get a little bit worried. Uh, it was about 58 to 42 uh, for Macron versus Le Pen, but nevertheless, abstentions were high uh, and France remains deeply divided post this election. Let's go to Paris now and join our French correspondent, Caroline Conan, uh, who joins us after a weekend of fantastic coverage on this vote. Caroline, the, the votes are in. We know who's won. Now what? The next challenge really is the legislative election, which are happening in June, in a couple months from now in France. And this is really like a third round. And in fact, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far left candidate who came third in the first round uh, said last night the third round starts tonight. He called uh, the French to vote for him in this parliamentary election in order uh, to become prime minister. Because, you know, if Emmanuel Macron doesn't manage to get a majority in parliament in June, he may have to choose a prime minister from a different party, meaning that his role would be limited to foreign affairs and dealing with crisis, making it almost impossible for him to actually govern. Caroline, I wonder, um, do you expect Macron to walk back any of these economic reforms which he's been pushing to the pension system, you know, economic equality, police brutality, now that he's been reelected? I believe major unions, in fact, are holding demonstrations on the 1st of May to make their case. I mean, is this something we can expect to see more of, worker strikes, blockades by students and such? The 1st of May is actually a day of traditional protest in France. It's always been the case because this is Labor Day. So you've always had protests uh, over the past few decades. This is a tradition almost. Uh, but clearly the pension reform was uh, very unpopular already when he tried to pass it during his first mandate. Then he had to abandon, all, to abandon the pension reform altogether because of the pandemic. He's going to try again to raise the retirement age to uh, 65 and that would, of course, uh, make it possible for him to finance his other reforms, other tax cuts and other investments in uh, the green transition, for example. So uh, clearly there is a risk of a new yellow vest type of protest as soon as this summer or perhaps this fall uh, if this uh, uh, pension reform is unveiled just like uh, he, he said uh, it, it would happen during his program. But basically... Um, the French uh, really, he really needs to have um, to reconcile the French uh, because uh, he knows that a lot of the French voted for him in order to block Marine Le Pen and yeah. not really to support his reform, not really to support this pension reform. So that, that's the question I was going to ask, actually. Was this a vote for Marine Le Pen, uh, for Macron or against Marine Le Pen? Because Marine Le Pen has in some ways gone a long way in terms of reforming her image. And I'm wondering whether this is kind of peak Marine Le Pen. It could be a peak Marine Le Pen, and many wonder what she's going to do next, especially if she loses the parliamentary election. There was this poll last night from Elab showing that about 
45% of those who voted for Emmanuel Macron in this runoff did so in order to block Le Pen. Not because they supported Macron, but just because they wanted to block Le Pen, uh, prevent the extreme from uh, getting uh, to uh, power. So basically, Emmanuel Macron has created his own trap by destroying the traditional left and the traditional right, because that means his only opposition really has to be the extreme. And given he cannot run for re-election next time around in 2027, uh, there is a sense of responsibility here, because if he does create a social fracture, social conflict in French society, then he will be held accountable if there is an anti-establishment candidate who gets to power next time in 2027. You know, Caroline, you mentioned, you know, attention is now going to shift to the legislative elections in June. um, And obviously, Macron is looking for a parliamentary majority there so that he can push through his programs. I mean, what are your thoughts there? What should investors be focused on? So obviously, um, the market reaction was kind of subdued because of this Macron victory, which was also actually uh, better than the polls were expecting before the runoff. Uh, Some polls were showing... uh, a closer uh, call for this runoff. Some polls are showing 51 to 49. So with 58%, he's got a better legitimacy, a stronger mandate. But uh, it is possible that we will see some spread or widening on the French tenure bond when we get to the uh, second week of June, when we get closer to the legislative elections, when we see whether Emmanuel Macron can actually uh, get a clear majority. It is possible also uh, that we will see some impact on the banking sector, especially uh, BNP Paribas, Sogen, Crédit Agricole, uh, who uh, also may suffer if there is a political gridlock in France. Karen Conan, thank you very much indeed. Karen Conan joining us from Paris. Some really fantastic coverage, as I say, over the last couple of days as we've uh, built up uh, and got through this French election. We will continue the coverage as we go into this third round, as Caroline says, uh, as we head towards uh, those parliamentary elections in a, uh, a couple of months' time. Damien, the real story to me, though, today was was the fact that the, the French market basically just ignored yeah. what, what was happening here uh, and focused much more on, on what was happening in China. But I guess when you're a market that is, that is kind of heavy with luxury stocks, LVMH, etc., China's probably the bigger focus. Well, if you focus on the currencies, though, I mean, it is a sea yeah. of red out there. I mean, I have I have not seen anything like this in quite some time, Guy. I mean, there are only two currencies writ large, I'm talking developed and emerging markets, that are actually up versus the dollar today. One is the Russian ruble, and we put no faith whatsoever yeah. in that price. <laughs> and the second is the Japanese yen, which, as we know, has been really lagging for the better part of the last you know month. So, you know, it just says everything you need to know. Right on the screen, across the board, every currency relative to the dollar, it is a safe haven bid. Absolutely. Uh, And there's multiple sources of the risk right now. You've certainly got that story in China, what's happening in Ukraine, uh, a huge factor. Uh, The Fed has gone quiet ahead of its next meeting, uh, but I suspect a lot of focus is going to be paid to what is going on there. The other story that is obviously capturing attention today is Elon Musk potentially getting very close to winning a bid for Twitter. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 5.30 in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. We being me, Guy Johnson, and Damien Sasser over in New York. Quick check of the price action. 
The Nasdaq can't wake up its mind today. It's basically flat right now. Uh, the tech heavy index down by just one tenth of one percent, but the S&P's down by a full percentage point. Uh, you are seeing names like Microsoft, Alphabet, ahead of earnings, actually looking fairly positive today. The FTSE 100 closing down by one point nine percent today. Um, we have seen commodity stocks, the oil stocks, the mining stocks coming under pressure uh, as we see China lockdowns being extended, further dampening demand for those metals. Big bid into the bond market, for instance, the UK two-year today, a reflection of where the expectation of where rates go next uh, currently lies. The UK two-year down by nearly 15 basis points today, a really, really big move. Uh, We'll come back and talk about one of the main market stories of the day. That's Twitter in just a moment. Before we do that, let's get a headline update with Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Asia is still snapping up cheap Russian oil that European buyers don't want. A fifth of the volume ship from ports on the Black Sea, Baltic, and Arctic coasts is on tankers, showing no final destination, with most expected to end up in Asia. A total of 40 tankers loaded about 28 million barrels from Russian export terminals, according to vessel tracking data and port agent reports collated by Bloomberg. Britain's cost-of-living squeeze is starting to bite into the spending power of most parts of the country, with 43% of those who pay energy bills saying they will struggle with the costs. The Office for National Statistics says the same proportion said they will be unable to save over the next year as a result of a jump in household bills. The United States is pledging more than $700 million in military financing for Ukraine and its allies as the Secretaries of State and Defense visited Kyiv for the highest level face-to-face talks between the administration and President Vladimir Zelensky since Russia invaded. And retailers in the UK are removing some edible products containing cannabis derivative CBD from shelves as compliance concerns mount following the food regulator's decision to rein in the industry. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Damien, do you use Twitter? <laughs> I do, I do. I wish I used it more, but I, uh, well, you know, oh, that's I, often, I, I wish I had more followers, people, Guy. That's the real, that's what I really wish for. <laughs> okay. Most people say they wish they used it less. <laughs> so it's interesting you talk about the fact that you use it more. Well, so why, why not enough? Well, not, just look, not enough time. You, you, no, I mean I do. I check it all the time. You know, I just think it's for me. It's very, very difficult. And this is what you know. I think we need to ask Ed Ludlow when he gets on here. Is you know what yeah. is Musk's plan for Twitter? Because you know I find it very difficult to find you know the topics and the things that I really want to you know know about. I'm literally I have to sort through a lot of uh, a lot of garbage to get there. If you know what I mean. Well, so that's it's interesting. So I was talking to Brent Thill from Jeffries a little bit earlier on. He said Elon Musk is capable of building a 21st century car. You look at the user interface, the UI of Twitter, and it looks like a 1970s yes. Ford. And that's the problem, basically, uh, that there is a lot of work to be done here in terms of making this pro- this product fit for purpose. Maybe Elon Musk is the right person to do it. It's interesting, the stock is still not trading at the 54 kind of offer price. It's still trading below that, despite expectations that actually a deal could get done fairly soon. Uh, Elon Musk twi- uh, tweeting within the last few minutes, actually, which is worth worth sort of thinking about um he said that even his, his he hopes that even his worst critics remain on twitter uh and he says that this is what free speech means his definition of free speech <laughs> i think is going to be the big question what well, does you say uh the man uh that to talk to about all of this is ed ludlow joining us now from san francisco ed is your sense that that elon musk is basically 
nearing the finish line here, that despite the fact that the share price isn't there yet at the 54, that this is a done deal? Yeah, we, we think so. I mean, sources tell us that the board, Elon Musk's advisors and representatives were working until the early hours of the morning and that the board was basically, has been more amenable to this, amenable is a funny word to use, but more open to this deal being real since we had the disclosures about the committed financing, right? Particularly on the debt side, $25.5 billion from basically the creme de la creme of Wall Street. And since that point about a week ago, you know, the board is now taking it more seriously than they otherwise were. Um, and we'll see. You know, there are lots of questions. Sources tell us he's still trying to find equity partners and co-investors for the remainder, $21 billion. But we could get a deal as soon as today. You know, Ed, I mean, details have been surfacing regarding Musk's frustration with the Saudi public, invention, uh, public investment fund, PIF, during his right. attempt to take Tesla private back in July 2018. You know, I'm curious, what's the risk of something similar, you know, another quote-unquote funding secured situation arising this time around? I th- again, you know, part of the confidence, the question of what has changed this weekend from last week is that the Twitter board saw Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Barclays, MUFG, backing the financing, that there was a plan in place. When Elon Musk took his offer initially, April th- dated April 13th for $54.20 a share, there were no details on financing. And read on the Bloomberg terminal the, the story by Dana Hull, which lists yep. the text message exchange right between Musk and the head of the PIF, Aramirian, and and him basically saying, we needed more information from you at that time. This is about taking Tesla private with the Saudi PIF, right? You know, the chairman basically saying we didn't have enough info from you. And, and drawing parallels between these two circumstances has been interesting. Okay, so let's talk about what could come next. Right. Um, Elon Musk clearly clearly has the skill set and the interest to, to develop Twitter. What could it, it yeah. look like? What, I, what do we know about yeah. what he actually really wants to do with this? Were he be able to buy it? So this comes from his, his TED Talk appearance um, 10 days ago now, right? But it's four buckets. One, an edit button that is time limited. So you can edit your tweet, but within a certain time frame. He doesn't believe in bans on the platform. And I made a fool of myself guy earlier trying to liken the analogy to a yellow card in rugby that he believes a timeout is better. So if you get a timeout from the platform, you're removed for a certain period of time rather than an outright ban. And of course, there's questions about whether he'd reintroduce Trump. The third is bots. There are loads of bots. It's a really big problem. Everyone knows that, that there are just all lots of fake accounts and he wants to get rid of those. It's a frustration for him. And the final, you guys talked about it earlier, the underlying technology, open sourcing the algorithm that Twitter's based on and basically dragging it into the 21st century. You know, Ed, you know, you mentioned the, the debt funding, the twenty five point five yeah. billion that 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 Elon's raised for Morgan Stanley and the like. You know, what I'm curious more about is the equity financing. You know, do you believe yeah. that uh, Elon's going to have to sell some Tesla shares instead of uh, I mean, I, I certainly don't believe he has enough cash to come uh, to come Correct. up with the purchase price. So I'm curious, you know, where the money's going to come from. So if you take into account the the two billion dollars or so Musk did already spend to acquire his Twitter stake of nine percent, he has about three billion dollars of cash and cash equivalents. And sources tell us he's still receiving interest from parties who want to participate in the equity financing, and he's still vetting potential co-investors. And twenty one billion dollars is a lot of money to come up with, right? He only has three billion dollars of cash or cash equivalents. Does he sell Tesla shares? 
to fund some of that? That's a good question. I think the other question that we have is, is he bringing in people that are strategic investors as part of an equity offering? Are they like-minded? Do they share his goals for the platform? Or is he just doing it because he needs more cash as part of the deal? Yeah. And he, we know he's talking to family offices, high net worth individuals and the like. Why, why have other groups potentially within that same group not got together and made a bid? Yeah. I, I just wonder whether the board changed its mind because basically he's, his offer is the only one on the table. And I'm, supr- I, I'm kind of wondering why others haven't come in. Now, I can understand why other big tech wouldn't be interested because I think it would be really hard to get over the line Antitrust. for a kind of yeah. Salesforce type company. But but what about other? Why hasn't why hasn't private equity come in here? Why haven't other potential offers emerged? It's interesting because over Twitter's history, others have considered, as Bloomberg's reported, coming in for Twitter. Um, as you quite rightly point out, the the idea from a few of the sell side analysts, at least, is that there was no white knight. So the board got to this weekend, Twitter's board, and they thought this is the option. This is the best and only one we've got. What I would flag is we don't know, but but Toma Bravo, Apollo, those those names seem to have disappeared from the conversation now, right? And part of the confusion with Apollo, for example, is sources have told us not only could they back a Musk bid, but they might also do the opposite and back a Twitter defense and act as a white knight. Um, that seems to have gone away. And, you know, we don't know if it's simply the confusion of doing business with Elon Musk um, or if there's just no value proposition in, in terms of buying Twitter and taking it private from those investors' perspective. You know, and at the beginning of the segment, Guy pointed out that Twitter shares are now trading at about $51, you know, well below, well, yeah. I think, what, the $54 uh, offer price from Elon. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think that reflects? Do you think that's yeah. the market kind of saying they don't believe that this is going to happen? Or is it something uh, is, is it something else? You can look at it over different time horizons, though. You know, the, the way I've kind of look at it on the Bloomberg is the shares are at their highest level since April 5th the day following Musk's first disclosure. And of course, on April 4th, the shares surged 27%. And with each twist and turn in this saga, the resounding message from investors that we speak to, from you know users of Twitter, from some Twitter employees, I have to say as well, is that we're moving in a direction where the outcome is more favorable for shareholders. So we're still trading at a discount to the $54.20 per share offer. And a year ago, you know, in April through August of last year, the share was, stock was trading at $70 a share. But at least we're moving in the right direction on the stock. Let, let's kind of just think about what, where the problems could, could emerge from, which is part of the kind of discount that we're seeing on the stock right now. Damien, do you, I, would this be something that the Chinese would care about? Is this something the Indians would care about? The European Union certainly will be watching this very carefully. But I'm wondering other markets, other big markets. Twitter isn't... This doesn't have the same footprint. Is this a, is this a Europe, U.S. story or is this a global story? Well, I mean, for me, I think primarily it's a U.S. Europe story. I mean, look, I got over the fact that I thought this was Elon, uh, you know, sticking up his middle finger to the SEC following, you know, what happened when he tried to take Tesla private. But, you know, it looks like he's serious about this guy. And look, that means, look, China is, is kind of off the reservation there. It looks like it is going to be an EU-US sort of antitrust type of conversation. Again, a little bit beyond me, but, you know, that seems to be the focus. Ed, I, do you, I, where, where, I'm, I'm trying to get to the bottom of where the risk is. Yeah. And, and it feels like a financing risk right now rather than a regulatory risk. The yeah. European Union is definitely going to be looking at this. It has a, I would just pass new laws uh, within the EU regarding social media. 
But nevertheless, I'm wondering where the risk ultimately emanates and why we're, why we're trading below it. Is it a financing risk? Is it a regulatory risk? Is it a Elon Musk risk? I, yeah. I'm wondering where it comes from. Well, it's all three buckets, right? From the financing risk, the other way of looking at it is that of the $25.5 billion of debt, there's $12.5 billion in the form of a margin loan with a loan-to-value ratio of 20%, meaning Musk had to front up $62 billion of Tesla stock. Yeah. And let's see the direction of travel that this deal goes in. Who knows what kind of market impact that could have the other thing we haven't really spoken about so far is key man risk elon musk right yeah. you know does he just lose interest in this it was only 10 days ago that he said he didn't think this deal would happen at all and yet we're moving to a place now where a deal could be announced today according to sources well so, okay let's just talk let's just talk more about that how involved would he be i'm assuming he would strip senior management out he's obviously clearly unimpressed with what they're doing with the product right now how much time does does Elon Musk need to spend on Twitter to fix it? He can do it. If it's a private company, he can do it obviously a lot quicker. But nevertheless, I, is this a zero-sum game from an Elon Musk time point of view? Yeah, I have to say, you know, there are sources at Twitter that I've spoken to do kind of frame it as the writings on the wall for Parag Agrawal, the CEO, a little bit. You know, whatever happens in whichever direction we go, Musk is not it seems, yeah. a fan of Agrawal. They seem to have ideological differences around content moderation, which we've discussed and we know about based on Musk's comments or tweets or memes, uh, whatever the currency of memes is, um, when Jack Dorsey stood down. Uh, the other thing as well is like Twitter has problems that it, it has problems irrespective of Musk, right? That monetizing the platforms proved difficult. Growth yeah. has been uncertain. Um, but is Musk the person to to fix those? According to sources, a big point of his part of his PowerPoint and Zoom calls with investors was that he actually did have a pretty convincing vision, not only of how he changed the platform, but how he'd boost revenue. Um, so, you know, again, it could be a net positive for Twitter's future. But we don't know. We really don't know. It's interesting. My, so Dan Jones psychology. are just flashing. They think the deal's worth 44. I wonder whether there's kind of just a little bit more than he's put on the table. Interesting. Maybe that gets the board to kind of where it needs to go. We squeezed every last cent out of this deal. Um, but it's not a huge margin, right? It's no. Not, it went not no. a huge move upwards. No, it's not. But but maybe taking it just up, to, just rounding it up, basically, maybe enough to to give the board a little bit more cover, maybe to, to, to sort of move along with things. Ed, great coverage. Thank you very much indeed. Ed's been up bright and early this morning in San Francisco uh, to cover this story for us, and it will be continuing to do so for many more hours, I suspect. Up next, we'll take you back to the markets. Uh, John Arthur's writing a fascinating piece earlier on the Bloomberg Terminal. He's going to be joining us next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio 548 in London. Now, often in financial markets, um, you get price action first, buying, selling, and then the narrative is kind of bolted on a little bit later as to why the buying or the selling is taking place. And I wonder whether we're seeing a little bit of that today. Um, so today, the S&P in the United States is down by let's call it eight-tenths of 1%. Over the last three days, Thursday, Friday, into Monday, we're down by around 5%. If you look at the, the GIP3, as you would call it, uh, on the Bloomberg, i.e. the last three sessions, basically the line goes uh, from high on the left to low on the right. And today just kind of looks like a sort of continuation of the last two sessions. Yet there's this kind of narrative floating around that we should blame today's price action on China and the fact that we're going to see 
lockdowns being extended potentially to Beijing. What should we make of this? What's the reality of the situation? Well, let's bring in Bloomberg Opinion's John Authors to try and get a sense of what is happening here. John, should I look at the GIP3 chart and basically see it as a continuation of the price action of the last couple of days? Or is today something new? Um, it's possible to say both. Uh, and I, I would. The Plainly, the way sentiments had moved by the end of last week, um, we were going to be trying to test the lows test resistance before before we could move on uh, and you've seen that but yes in my opinion what has happened in china both the uh, growing alarm about covid shutdowns uh, and the devaluation of the currency has had an effect uh, if you look at the um, at the price of uh, energy shares, that's really quite dramatic. In points terms, the S&P 500 energy index is having its third worst day in the last decade today. The other two worst days were both days when OPEC plus meetings broke down. Um, so this is a very dramatic uh, snap in confidence over uh, over energy. If you look at fertilizer prices, similar things that had built a great deal of uh, momentum on the back of uh, the belief in a commodity, um, you know, commodity super wave or whatever you want to call it. Again, they have reversed quite sharply today. Uh, the other point I think it's worth making is that the while the the, the GIP three on um, the stock market is fairly clearly a, a straightforward diagonal line. The GIY3 on uh, on 10-year yields or on real yields isn't the same thing at all. That, that, that um, we have actually seen a traditional risk on day-to-day -day when people have sold stocks and bought bonds. Um, and I think there is both a reason and an excuse to do that from the Chinese developments. They're seen as deflationary for the rest of the world rather than inflationary. Well, John, I mean, I think you make a great point. You know, you're talking about positioning turning defensive, and it's not just in equities. I mean, we have seen financials and builders down relative to utilities, and we've seen that pick up in hedging activity. I'm talking put buying in the S&P. But, you know, you make a great point. Getting defensive in this market is no longer as easy as it once was because the challenge is finding a good safe haven asset. In your opinion, in this environment, you know, where can investors turn if they want to express a defensive view? Uh, not too many places. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> obviously, within the uh, within the stock market, there are relatively more defensive sectors that you can move for. The problem is that for a very long time, people have regarded the fangs, the big internet platforms, as defensive plays, which uh, has created its own its own problems, its own uh, growth in uh, in assets. I would still be inclined to say I don't think it's sensible to make any big asset allocation move into fixed income, although, as we were commenting earlier, you can certainly make more of a case for that now that yields are actually uh, testing the levels that they are than you could have done a couple of months ago. Um, it still seems to make sense to me to hedge against inflation with commodities there might have been more of a might be more of an entry point today given uh, 
given what's happened today. Yep. Uh, and solid, boring stocks. I mean, relatively solid, boring yeah. stocks make Look more at Coca-Cola today. Uh, out with some really solid numbers. Uh, the Atlantic Company doing really mm. well, able to pass on, um, to pick up some of the gains it's made post-pandemic. And, and also pricing seems to be within its power. You, you, in your piece, John, you talked about the VIX. The VIX is currently trading at 30 spot 30. It, it's mm. up a little bit more today, but it looks like it's off its highs. How much of a clue should we take away in terms of the, the possibility of a near-term bounce in stocks from the fact that maybe the VIX has peaked kind of at 31? I'm just looking at the, look at the high now, 31.60. I think that intends to mean that the VIX hasn't flashed a really clear, yes, this has gone too far, we're ready to bounce uh, message. The fact that it eases, if it continues to ease, and a lot will depend on the last hour of trading this afternoon here in New York, but the fact that it is easing might imply that uh, that people are calming down regardless. But I don't think, I, I personally, I, I, I think you need a more aggressive sell-off uh, and a greater test of exactly how negative people are feeling. How, how high would that take the VIX? What would that look like on the VIX? Uh, certainly well into the 30s. Um, if you top 40, which um, would mean if you get a higher VIX level than you got in the early days of the Ukraine conflict, yeah. which I think in many ways could be justifiable given how uh, deep the uncertainty over, over rates is at present, that then becomes a very interesting uh, opportunity to, right. to, to buy into stocks. But we're not apparently going there just yet. John, great to catch up. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Damien, what a pleasure as what ever. What a pleasure. Bloomberg's Damien Sasser. Great day to have Damien on the show. Really appreciate that. Um, we'll continue the coverage. We'll continue to watch what is happening. Uh, markets kind of oscillating into what is an interesting week for tech earnings. Uh, we're very much going to focus on that story throughout the rest of this week. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.